Well, we are starting a, uh, a new series, though we will pick back up in the Heart of the King series next week. So John Henderson is preaching this morning for us in the 1030, Lord willing. So he is not teaching this ABF hour and he won't teach on March 28th either. And so this morning, March 28th, and right now we're looking into the month of May uh, at the end of the Heart of the Kings, we're going to do a series called One Anothering. And I'll give a bit more explanation, but you'll see on the back of your handout this morning uh, the topics that we'll cover in the, the corresponding weeks. Many of you all may be familiar with the Discovery Channel's reality show, Alaska's The Last Frontier. It's about a homesteading family that lives sort of off the grid in, uh, in Alaska. And one of the two patriarchs of the, uh, of the family that's, fe- that's fe- featured on that show, the Kilcher family, is Ott's Kilcher, which, by the way, is just a great name if you're expecting a child. Ott's is a, is a very manly, kind of Alaskan type of name. Uh, and on one of the seasons, in a series of episodes, it featured uh, Ott's, who had, had a lifelong desire to homestead in a way in which his father had done, uh, but he wanted to do it alone, sort of roughing it, and he had this idea of roughing it or, ho- or homesteading on a houseboat. And so this show chronicled Ots's ability to, to secure a, uh, an abandoned ship, to create a living quarters on that ship, to even uh, outfit it with a hanging garden that could supply uh, fresh fruit and vegetables. And then he had a, a rowboat that he could take his rifle and go and hunt on the, uh, on the shore for the protein that he needed. And all was well, and it, and it chronicled, chronicled sort of this, uh, this amazing feat of turning this abandoned ship into uh, a workable homestead. But as the season progressed, one of the things that it became abundantly clear that Otz was missing was his family. See, Otz was, is married. He's a wife and adult children. And, uh, and so it would regularly go to him and he would be longing for his family to come out and see him. And when they would come, he would have a wonderful visit and then they would go back and it would focus in on him on how he missed uh, the community for which he, uh, he lived in with his wife and children. So uh, part of what we are going to be thinking through this morning is the way in which that many of our mainstream media outlets in Hollywood pick up on this basic need humanity has. So think about movies and books that are made uh, that really highlight um, life in isolation. So think about movies like uh, Castaway or the book Robinson Crusoe or Gravity, the book Hatchet, um, or even Discovery Channel has another one called Alone, where the the goal of the show is to survive alone the longest. And if you do that, uh, you don't know the other contestants, whether they've, whether they've quit and, and said, I can't do this anymore. And so as far as you know, you're still out there alone and they're still out there alone. And you're trying to outlast who can survive the longest alone. And it seems as a society, we're drawn to these kinds of shows because it hits on something we're intrigued by. It, it rails against our natural bent towards uh, life in community. And we want to know if we could make it alone. It's like when you tell a, a young child, you know, don't touch that hot stove or don't uh, go into the street to play. The, the one thing that they want to do is to touch the hot stove to wonder, is it really hot? Or is the street really dangerous? 
But the reality is that prolonged aloneness is not natural as we were created for community. So in other words, I'm not suggesting that there is no place in the Christian life for solitude. Of course there is. We know that Jesus regularly would retreat to be alone, to commune with his Father, and to pray. However, isolation by choice and even by circumstance, we certainly do know that that does exist within the church. And in this particular season, we're painfully aware of the ways in which isolation has, uh, has caused challenges for many in our own body and many across uh, the country and many uh, around the world with this pandemic. And one of the hardest things about the church in this season is the isolation and the divisions this pandemic has created. So members who feel at risk or are at the encouragement of their doctors to stay home. They feel it's the safest thing to do, and so they, they've stayed away from the larger gathering. It's not their desire to do so um, necessarily because they're thinking about their health or about what their doctor's advice is, but they are, in effect, uh, away from us. Or others, sadly, I think, where the elders have spent much time praying and, and pursuing other members is Many members for which we, we don't know are joining online or are not gathering with us, uh, there's concern about how they're doing spiritually. Where are they? And when things return to some semblance of normal, uh, where will those people be? How are they doing spiritually? So as you're thinking and even praying for the church and as you're praying for your elders, uh, be praying to that end, that God would give us um, wisdom and that we would think pastorally and lovingly about pursuing those that we are not regularly seeing or that we know uh, aren't able to join us or aren't choosing to join us on the live stream. So this pandemic has, called, has caused isolation. And that's part of what I want us to think about this morning. Not necessarily isolation, but this new series that's going to be broken up over a number of weeks in the spring, the aim is going to be to consider afresh what it means to be the church and to live out these one another passages that we see in the scriptures. Jesus' own words to the disciples in John chapter 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another, in verse 35, and by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. But first, it seems essential that we must agree that we have a need for community. So I believe that as you move from the introduction, that second point is created for community. And one caveat I'll give over these next couple of uh, points, point th two and three, is that we're not going to do an exhaustive uh, treatment of, uh, of these next two points because we're really trying to get to this idea of this love one another command and really how this love one another command relates to all the other one another commands that we see in the scripture. So I, I pray that we do a sufficient job, but just know that it will not be an exhaustive treatment on these next two points. But suffice to say that we are hardwired with a basic need as humans for community, that God created us that way. So the reason that you and I need one another is because God created us that way. And not only did he create us that way, he placed a longing for community and then supplied 
He supplied us with that community that would satisfy the longing. So we were created, we have been created to be in community both with God and with others. In Genesis chapter one, God creates the the heavens and the earth and every living thing in it, sun and sky and moon and oceans and trees and flowers and plants and animals and somehow, yes, even ticks and fleas and flies. I don't know why yet, but he did. And he created you and I. So let's look then at Genesis chapter one, verses 26 through 28. We have recorded in Genesis chapter one. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God created man in his image, and in his image, within the triune Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is perfect community. So in our created in our creation, in God creating us, part of how we image God is that we are created for community, community that mirrors what God has in in of himself in the triune Godhead, that God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are always in perfect community with one another. But it is helpful for us to be reminded that God didn't create us for community because God was lonely. No, God lacks nothing. He's fully satisfied in and of himself all time and forever. But we do know then as we move to the next chapter, as Adam's in the, in the garden doing the work that God gave Adam to do, we look over in Genesis chapter 2, 18 through 25, and we read, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them a man to see what he would call them brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to the beast of the fields. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken of the man, he made into woman and brought her to the man Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So what we see is seven times in that creation narrative in Genesis chapter one, we hear that creation was good and then God created man. He says it's very good because he's created in God's likeness. But then we learn in Genesis chapter two, something's not very good, right? It's not good for Adam created in God's image to be alone without the community of another created in God's image. So all of creation was good except man as it related to his isolation from another like him. So Adam was created for community with God, yes, but he was also created for community with others, others like him, others created in God's image. So God creates Eve out of Adam, and we have this first 
this first union of husband and wife. And they have perfect communion with one another and perfect communion with God in the garden before the fall. So the unescapable reality for every human being is that no matter how fiercely independent or how shy or how reclusive, we were all created for a longing for community. So from the beginning of creation, God designed us that way. So I wonder even this morning, do you recognize your basic need for community? Have there been ways in which this pandemic has highlighted the basic need for community? Now remember when we first gathered back the first Sunday after a number of weeks off, there was, yes, it was odd and it continues to be odd with masks, but there was uh, a joy at just gathering together even with the masks because we had missed being together. And part of what's been even encouraging, I think, uh, at least to me, is as I understand it, compared to um, other even area churches, a higher percentage of our members have come back um, in, in those early days than did other churches. And I think part of what that highlights is this reality that we understand in part our need for one another, our longing for community, what it means to be the church, not just to come to a service or to check a box, but to literally to understand that we have a responsibility one to another. But I wonder if, in addition to that, are we grateful to God for creating that community longing in us? And how often do we find ourselves searching for community in things that can't satisfy our longing? Perhaps we do that through uh, work relationships, or perhaps we, we seek that in ourselves through the vices that we pursue. In some ways, I think, um, you know, Sadly, middle school is a great sort of microcosm of what it means to have an identity crisis sometimes. It's a, it's a, it can be a very lonely place as kids are sort of jockeying for their position and you know who's going to be the leader and who's going to be the follower and who's going to be the this and the that. And kids get lost in, the, in that transition if they're not rooted in what it means to seek their community in the things that actually matter the most to find their identity in Christ and not in the things of this world, to, to find their community in the, the giftedness of the friends or the family that they've been given, and then to navigate those, uh, those seasons in such a way that don't, uh, that don't finally discourage them. So granted, it's clear that the church isn't perfect, right? I'll, I'll often tell people that, uh, that you know, we're not a perfect church. We're not the only church in town, uh, meaning we're not the only church that I would recommend you go to or the only church that is doing things well. Uh, in fact, we'll often say that, uh, or I'll often say that we're a, you know, an imperfect people who serve a perfect God. So we're gonna, we're gonna mess things up. We're gonna hurt one another. We're going to do things wrong. So the church has much to do in learning how best to extend community to one another and to display that love one to another to the watching world. And if you're familiar with uh, Rosaria Butterfield's testimony, uh, part of her conversion uh, was that a faithful pastor would regularly, over a prolonged season of time, had befriended her and had extended to her the love of Christ and sat and listened to her and visited with her and shared Christ with her. And that's part of what the Lord used to convert Rosaria Butterfield um, in, and then 
for her then to share her story uh, through uh, her book and through another book where she's focusing on what does it mean to, to do hospitality in a way that, uh, that is attractive to not only those in the church, but those outside the walls of the church. So we're created with a longing for community, but I want to dive a bit deeper into this community that's created by God. So first we've looked at the longing that God placed in us in creation. I want us to look for a moment at this community created by God. So we've talked a bit about the fact that God created this longing for community, that he supplied the means by which it could be obtained. He did so in the garden uh, before the fall through marriage and through childbearing. And in other words, like as, as they were given this responsibility to be fruitful and multiply, they themselves were, were making more image bearers, right? So they were, they were fulfilling um, that creation mandate to make more image bearers in the likeness of God and then to, to steer or turn them towards the one who had created them, namely God. Uh, so in, before the fall, what God required, it's not good for man to be alone, God supplied right? He supplies Eve. So we're painfully aware of the, the sin and brokenness all about us in the world that we live in. The, the effects of the fall are all around us. And in God's kindness and grace, he did not remove from us the created desire or longing for him or for others. So in other words, it's a kindness of God that in the garden, when Adam and Eve were deceived and they chose to sin and thus breaking this perfect community that they had with God the Father, there were consequences, but one of those consequences, yes, they were cast out of the garden and yes, there was, uh, there was um, shame and there was the knowledge of sin, but God did not remove from them the longing and the need for one another or for the longing and need for God himself. He didn't finally turn them over and say, you know, best of luck to you. He didn't, he didn't remove from them that need for community. So it's God's grace that yes, there were consequences, but that longing for community and to be with God and to be with others was not finally removed. And we could spend a good bit of time here tracing uh, the community God created after the fall. And I do want us to look at that briefly, but I, I want us to see that after the fall in the garden, God continued to supply a way for him to have a people unto himself who have fellowship with him and with one another. So after the fall in Genesis 3 through 11, we see a bleak picture of humanity, failed attempt after failed attempt as it relates to rebellion against God. And then we come to Genesis chapter 12 and we see another act of God's faithfulness uh, of a God who takes a seemingly insignificant man in Abram to be a beacon of hope to the world, to create the, you know, and to give him uh, a wonderful promise, which we'll see fulfilled throughout the pages of scripture. So let's look then at Genesis chapter 12, verses one to three briefly. We're gonna look at Genesis 12, 15, and 17 briefly. Genesis 12, one to three. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis chapter 15. Verse one, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, 
what will you give me? For I continue childless and the heir of my house, Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look towards heaven and number the stars. If you were able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And so, and he believed the Lord and it counted to him as righteousness. And then we look over in Genesis chapter 17, verses one to eight. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you may multiply you and may, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations and I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring and you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after the land of of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. So though man would fail miserably at keeping their end of the covenant that God outlines here in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, God would not fail. God would keep his covenant. He would be their people. He would sustain his people throughout multitude of generations because God is always faithful to his promises. And we flip just over to the New Testament and we were reminded that this covenant finds its fulfillment in the perfect spotless son of God, Jesus Christ who would come to fulfill what the law could not and keep what we could not and in so doing would reconcile man to himself for all that would believe in Christ and turn from their sin and walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. But this community God created is not biological, but spiritual. So Jesus would illustrate that in Mark 3.33 as as his mothers and brothers were calling to him as he's teaching. And Jesus responds to those listening, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister in mother. So in God's family, spiritual lineage brings familial blessing, not the other way around. Spiritual lineage brings familial blessing, not the other way around. In other words, when we're born even into a Christian family, that doesn't guarantee us the right to all that Christ has or all that God has in Christ. It is still our journey, our path, our rebellion, our sin, our need for reconciliation, our need for a savior that will bring us into that spiritual, that spiritual family. And in coming into that spiritual family, we receive all the familial blessings that come with life with God, that come with life with Christ. That's why Paul could say with confidence in Galatians chapter three, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian for in Christ, 
For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abram, Abram's offsprings, heir according to the promise. So until Christ returns, we experience the blessings of God in this community that God has created, namely the church, and in particular, yes, uh, the local church. So yes, we are part of a, a greater community, uh, the, the universal church, but in particular, there is so much of the New Testament is written to local churches. So much of this blessing is meant to be lived out in the context of the local church. And until Christ returns, this created community that God has given us is the local church. And that we continue to love one another and to encourage one another and to spur one another on until we, until we attain that eternal dwelling that will culminate in unending worship of the only one who is worthy. And so Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, Therefore God has, ex- has highly exalted him, that being Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's where all of this is culminating. One theologian said, By studying redemptive history, we come to see that the church is not something God invented because all other plans had failed. Rather, the church was the culmination of all of God's plans for his children. Church, when done the way God intends, gives us a taste of the perfect community we will experience in paradise. And so we labor, and so we toil, and so we love, and so we forgive. And so we forbear, and so we encourage, and on and on and on. This is why, prayerfully, you've heard uh, one or more of the elders regularly say that there is a unique bond that you and I share together that is greater than the bond that we share with some that share our last name if they're not in Christ. In other words, in this room, as members of University Baptist Church, we have more or the most important thing in common than with anybody else because we share in common union with Christ in the context of this local church. So this is your family. This is my family in ways in which we will experience the lasting joys of everything that Paul outlined for us as we just read in Philippians chapter two, in a way in which all of the Bible is pointing to and will culminate in worship of the one who created us forever in the heavens. So if you're a coach or a homeschool mom or a Walmart vendor or high school student, you may have great connection with other people in that same stage of life. But what we're trying to draw out is the community that you should put the highest emphasis on to know and be known exists right here in the church that's about you, the church that is around you, the church that you're a part of, not the church that's actually about you. So I want us to look then at our next point, cultivating created community. So we've established that God created us with a longing for community with him and for one another. We've seen how the fall broke that community. 
with God and made it difficult for the community between one another even. Yet God in his mercy and grace preserved that community through Abraham, through the generations, until the coming of Christ. And in this community, God has created the church. As we grow in Christ, we are increasingly being made into the image and likeness of Christ day by day as we pursue him and his word. But this requires effort for the individual and it requires effort collectively. So we must be about the, the business of cultivating the community that God has created. We must take an active role in both preserving and cultivating or nurturing this community that God has created. Not because God isn't able to do so, but because we are not yet free from the sinful desires that so easily entangle us. In other words, God has created this community. God has given us the longing for this community. God has supplied the necessary means for this community through Christ for us to have this spiritual union and to experience the familial blessings that come with being known by Christ. But yet we still have responsibility to work and to effort and to labor and to forbear and to pursue this unity in such a way that brings glory to God and points others to the gloriousness of God. So not only do we have to take this active role, not only do we have to work, but we have a particular command that we're charged with that we looked at just a moment ago, to love one another. So we don't have to work very hard, sadly, we see, to make a mess of the community that God created because we're so easily distracted and led by a desire to not to please God, but to please ourselves. Something happens and we get upset or we get frustrated or we get hurt and we, we, we so easily forget this community that God has supplied and the community that God sustains. So part of what I want us to, to think through this morning is what it means to love one another. We read this a bit ago. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus' calls to the disciples was a simple statement, but that one for generations, we've both succeeded in times and we've epically failed at other times within the church. But in the context of Jesus giving this command to the disciples, his instruction was not for them to be known by some special rite or some ritual, nor their manner of dress, rather by their love one for another, by a genuine, deep, sameness kind of love. This sameness is found in the reality that Christ had ransomed them all unto himself for his own glory. So this sameness that they have isn't that they all look alike or that they all have the same hobbies or that they all, you know, read the same books. No, the sameness that they have is that they've all been ransomed unto Christ for his glory. They've all been saved from their own sin and put on a, on a, a trajectory that will culminate in unending, ceaseless worship of the King of Kings. So it's always been the business of God's people to live distinct lives. That distinctness is meant to point others to the one who called us to himself. But notice too that this isn't a suggestion. Jesus doesn't say a new suggestion I give you. No, he says a new commandment I give you. Meaning that it can be and should be regularly demonstrated within the body of Christ. 
You see, the old command was to love your neighbor as yourself. But the new command is to love one another in a particular way. And Jesus says, as I have loved you. So the basis for this new command is not our ability to love, but Christ's ability and his love working through us and working itself out one to another to demonstrate and to to share and to extend the love of Christ to one another within this community that God's created. So Christ Jesus demonstrated ultimate love to us and God the Father in the same selfless act. So there's no greater demonstration of love than God sending his son and that same son laying down his life on our behalf to ransom sinners like you and me for himself and for his father's glory. And our response in worship to God is to love Christ and to love one another. And in so doing, when we love one another, we love what God loves. We love his bride. We love one another. A former pastor here used to say, you can't claim to love Jesus and not love his bride. I think that's a helpful distinction for us. You can't say, I love Jesus, but I don't care about his church. I love Jesus, but I don't, I don't need you all. I just need, you know, sort of me and Jesus. And the reality is there's far too much of that within the church and within Christian circles is it's just, hey, as long as I think God and I are okay, then everything else is sort of optional. And the the New Testament and all of the Bible doesn't assert that same mistaken reality. To love the bride of Christ is to love God the Father. So if you love someone, you probably tell them as much. Right? I, I regularly tell my kids that I love them. I tell my wife I love her. But I've always remembered that growing up in a single parent home, one of the things my mom regularly said to me is, it's easy to say that you love someone. It's more difficult to show them that you love them. So, so too it is within the church. It's easy to say that I love the body of Christ. It's easy to say that I love each of you. It's a harder thing to demonstrate by my actions that I love you. And so we do both, right? I ought to be communicating love to you and I ought to be demonstrating love to you. And so too should you be demonstrating and showing and saying and speaking love to one another. Another theologian said of this command, of all the instances of Christ's love to his disciples, which they had already experienced during the time he went in and out among them, he spoke kindly to them, concerned himself heartily for them and for their welfare, instructed counseled and comforted them, prayed with them and for them, vindicated them when they were accused, took their part when they were run down, and publicly owned them uh, to be dearer to him than his mother or sister or brother. He reproved them for what was amiss and yet compassionately bore with their their failings, excused them, made the best of them, and passed by many an oversight. I mean, I wonder how much do you reflect on the ways in which God's love has been extended to you in that manner? And is that, is that sort of the, the, the driving force by which you think about relating to others within the church? Maybe a, a working definition for us to consider on what is love. Hey, love is more than simply warm feelings. It's an attitude that reveals itself in action. So love is more than warm feelings. It's an attitude that reveals itself in action. So how might we model our love for one another? 
Well, this last week, even as temperatures dipped to record lows and snowfall like we haven't seen in some time, there was an email that went out just asking from within the body, hey, is there anybody that has needs? Are there anybody that'd be willing to meet needs? And uh, as the one who was receiving those emails back, uh, I was so encouraged at the ways in which the body was willing to love others within the body just to meet a simple need. Hey, you know, is it a gallon of milk? Is it a ride to the doctor? Is it firewood? Is it, you have a busted pipe? Um, and so, you know, it was so encouraging in one tangible expression to say, hey, I realize that things are, you know, they're, it's, it hurts to be outside, um, but I realize that, you know, we have the ability or the means, and if there's a need, I'd love to meet it. Now, there weren't a lot of needs that were brought, you know, to the forefront that could be met, but I loved seeing that there was the, the foundation of love that says, hey, if there's a need, then put me on the call list. I want to help. That's a, that's a tangible expression of love. You know, this week, even as I've been preparing to, to teach this morning, I've gotten wonderful uh, texts or calls of people just saying, hey, I'm praying for you. I'm grateful for you. Uh, looking forward to the time this morning. Um, that's a way in which we love one another. I shared a couple of weeks ago as I was uh, able to preach here that it reminded me afresh of the, of the labors that it is for, uh, for Brad to preach week in and week out here and to, to juggle and manage all that's required of, of our lead pastor uh, in, a, in a given week and then also to be preparing regularly to bring God's word to God's people is no small task. And I wonder like, dude, you know, because I was convicted in that week, do I find myself regularly loving Brad by praying for Brad or asking him how the sermon's going, or praying for him about the sermon. And I wonder, do, do we do the same? Are we, as we're reading through that sermon card, and we're flipping through, and we're, we're studying God's word individually as we prepare to come and hear the word preached, are we praying for the one who's bringing the message? Are we praying for the one who's bringing the sermon? It's a good discipline for us to think about how do we love one another? And I'm, I picked that one just because it was relative to me thinking about my preparation this week in ways I've been encouraged. So certainly there are many more ways you can love and encourage um, each other, but th- there's a couple. The reality is that there's actually tangible expressions of, of loving one another happening all around us. And one of the ways we can encourage each other is by sharing those, you know, sharing those evidences of grace telling one another how we're seeing that love being demonstrated, telling one another how that love is being, is spurring us on or encouraging us. It's also true that loving one another can be very difficult within the church. The family of God will hurt one another. We will wrong one another. And loving one another looks like going to your brother and sister and not talking about them to others because gossip and slander are antithetical to the love Christ commands in John 13, 34. That isn't a loving way. God's actually given us exactly what he wants us to do when our brother has sinned against us. So we pursue true reconciliation that protects unity. We learn to speak the truth in love even when it's difficult to say and even harder to hear. Another way we can show love to one another is to Show hospitality, open our home. Whether in your home or after a service or before a service, engage in spiritual conversations. You know, we can have lots of 
meaningless conversations. And I'll be the first to admit that sometimes men are the worst at it. You know, I've, I've regularly said my wife will go out with her friends and she'll come back and she'll talk about what they talked about. And I'll be like, oh, that was significant. She'll say, what'd you all talk about? You know, and, and I'll, football or, you know, whether or not we could, could have pulled somebody faster behind that truck. Um, and not always, but it's a, it's sometimes it's, it is a labor. It takes work. It takes thoughtfulness to have spiritual conversations, but engage in those spiritual conversations. Loving one another can look like helping when it isn't convenient. So, you know, thinking back to this week, it wouldn't have been convenient for everybody to get out and help each other, and some couldn't, and they shouldn't. But to, to be able to help when it isn't convenient is a way in which we're loving our brother. Another way we could love one another would be to listen. And I mean really listen to your brother and sister when they're hurting or when they're sharing joys or pains or sorrows and then seek to point them back to the one who can satisfy, who knows their hurt, who's sympathetic to their hurt, one who's been you know, tempted in every way. That they tempt, point them back to the great high priest. The reality is I know often when I'm listening and when I'm not listening and I'm not listening often when I'm finding myself focusing more on what I'm going to say in response to what you're telling me than I am genuinely just listening to what you're saying. Learn to be one who listens well. Another way we can love one another would be giving yourself for your resources when it hurts to do so. In other words, I'm not thinking about irresponsibility. You know, where you just, you know, you get... You get something and you think, well, I, just, I should just give this. I should give this all or I should give all my time. And, you know, I'm up here serving, but I'm neglecting my, my home responsibilities. I'm not talking about that. Rather, what I am talking about is being willing to give your resources, give of yourself, give of your time in such a way that continues to point others and yourself to the reality that you're wholly dependent on Christ for all that you need and for all that you have and for all that you need supplied. We have to protect the unity within the church as we love one another. So perhaps maybe you're finding yourself in, in isolation or in hurt or in frustration or anger. Pray that God would help you sort through that hurt and to see if your brother has sinned against you in some way that you would go to him as the scripture commands. Ask also for the Lord to teach you the difference between your expectations of others and his expectations of others. And if it's your expectation of others that are unrealistic, then let me encourage you to submit those to Christ and keep on submitting those to Christ until your soul is satisfied in Christ. Believe the best in one another until you have some reason to believe otherwise. And when that happens, and it often will, Will you lovingly correct or rebuke your brother just as the Lord lovingly disciplines and corrects and rebukes you with that same measure of grace? Out of the overflow of love with which Christ has demonstrated to you, will you go and help your brother see his error? Be proactive in loving your brother and sister. Be creative. Be consistent. Don't underestimate how loving it is even just to be present. You know, if you remember back when we were doing everything uh, via Zoom, uh, there was a regular encouragement during the, ABF, or during the ABF classes that we're meeting, you know, to turn your camera on, 
You know, if you're the teacher and you're teaching to, you know, 18 blank screens with just a name on it, it, you know, it, it sort of took the dragginess of Zoom to a whole nother level. You know, so it's just like there's, there was joy in seeing the faces. Um, and so too, as we think about being present, there's joy in our ability to love one another as we see one another regularly. You know, I've been fortunate to be on staff here for a long time. And one of the things I think Satan often uses in the lives of those that are struggling at, at our church, sometimes is our own campus. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you are one that finds yourself hurting or um, isolated or something, you know, you're struggling through something, then sometimes you can come in and out of this campus through the, you know, myriad of doors we have and you can slip in and in your own heart, you're thinking like, you, you start to play these sort of mind games. Like, hey, I, I don't think anybody even knows if I come or not. So I'm gonna come a little bit late. I'm gonna sit in the back and then I'm gonna leave a little bit early and I'm gonna continue to build the narrative that nobody even knows whether I'm there or not. And so that begins to build into the fact that you don't feel loved and therefore, this must not be the place for you. And, you know, we, we do have a, a more transient type of um, setting here in the, at the university where we have students that are, you know, here for nine months, gone for three. Um, they graduate, they move on, new ones come in. And sometimes it is a real challenge to, to recognize and to see people every week. Um, even this, this last week, I think it was Friday, I was in a meeting with a few guys and one guy recognized another. They weren't members of this church. And uh, we had, you know, masks on and this guy had a hat on. And the, the gentleman who thought he recognized my friend said, oh yeah, I thought your eyebrows looked familiar. Um, you know, and sadly that's hard for us right now is just seeing sort of a third of one another's faces makes it a challenge. Make an extra effort. But this is where your directory is great. This is where it's super helpful to grab that member directory and to be praying for and to familiarize yourself. Or when we have those member meetings to see those pictures up on the screen and see the contact information on the back. Every, I, I try every member interview I do, I try to tell those new members like, hey, on that member meeting night, you know, here's kind of how it happens. Your picture will go up on the screen. There'll be a few bullet points about you. Um, and then on, the, on the, that member packet, your, your contact information is printed there. And it's printed there because we're going to tell the members of the church, hey, these are our new members. Reach out to them. You know, welcome them into this body. And I tell them like, hey, listen, I'm telling you that so that you won't be sort of weirded out when somebody calls you and says, you know, hey, Stephen, uh, welcome to the church. Or, hey, I, I, I know that you're, you're interested in this because I, I was in the member meeting and I heard this. But it, it's not always natural for us. We want to make a face-to-face. -face, and I think we should make those face-to-face -face meetings. But the reality is like we, we, we have to inconvenience ourselves to love one another well. And that's a way in which we can do it through that new member trick. So the reason that we print that information is we want you to use it. We want to be using it to reach out and extend that welcoming, loving, gracious hospitality to one another. And even thinking through like how interesting it has been for people to have joined in this season. You know, like new members coming into to our church in a season where, you know, we're not able to all gather together or we're not able to, to do hospitality. We're not able to do the things in the same ways in which we once were. And so I think it's our responsibility, particularly those of us that have been here and, and understand these things to pursue those 
people to pursue. I mean, you'll see it in your directory. There's a little asterisk that says joined in the last 90 days. Like, what if you focused in on, on that group? And some you may find like, hey, we're doing great. Like, we're connected well. We've met so-and-so and so-and-so, and we're doing great. Fine, wonderful. Move on to the next one. Or, or look and see in that directory who you're not seeing and, and call them. Hey, let me, I just want to encourage you. Why don't you know I'm praying for you today? You know, hopefully if you've gotten uh, in the habit of praying for one another through that member directory, you've likely gotten a text or an email or a phone call that just says, hey, I just wanted you to know it's the, you know, 16th of February and I prayed for you today. Um, you know, that's an encouragement. That's a, a genuine encouragement to know that other believers are praying. All that was sort of a long extended commentary on not, over, not um, overlooking the power of just being present, the, the significance of being present in the body of Christ. And I want us to just think for a minute that we should be encouraged that the spirit of the living God that lives inside of you and me is, is going to culminate, is going to lead us to this unending worship, the one who created all of us. And in so much as we're submitting to the Holy Spirit's leading and direction in our life and submitting ourselves to one another and being disciplined in the word, then by God's grace, we will get there. That's part of the promise that God gives us, that he will not lose any that are his, that it's all gonna, it's all gonna culminate in this unending worship. But the basis for all these other one another's will flow from our understanding of this command to love one another. And if we don't rightly understand this command to love one another, then we won't be able to rightly understand how to protect the community that God has created. We won't rightly understand what does it mean to build one another up. We won't rightly understand what it means to, to show the watching world what it means to, to be in a community of, of Christ in such a way that displays the glory of God to a watching world. But if we do this right, if we do love one another and as we love one another and as we pursue the word and as we pursue being led according to the Holy Spirit. We will demonstrate to one another the love of Christ. We will demonstrate to the watching world and by God's grace, we will get to experience and to live in eternal community with God. So we are to long for the eternal community with God. And I want to read um, from a couple of spots in the, as we conclude. Over in Revelation chapter 21, beginning in verse 1, going to verse 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice of the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithful, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers and sexually immoral, 
Sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Friends, rest assured, the Lord Jesus will return to take all those who are his, to be with him forever, and that we're to make ourselves ready each day while we await his return. We're to love one another as Christ loved us, and in so doing, demonstrate the love of God to the watching world and to one another, to encourage one another that we will get there, that we will cross the finish line, we will be reunited with God. Not only does this kind of love testify to our non-Christian friends, it's the fuel that encourages and strengthens the Christians to press on in a world that's increasingly hostile to the gospel. So what I'd love to do is conclude with uh, just a reminder of the way in which the, uh, the Apostle Paul would encourage the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul writes, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. My hope is that in the handout that you have on the back uh, inside, you have a, a number of questions. The hope of those questions is really that we'd be able to evaluate um, our responsibility, our love, our uh, understanding of what God has done for us in Christ as it relates to this command to love one another as Christ has loved us and then to demonstrate that love to one another. Um, we have maybe time for a question or two and then I'm going to pray for us. Any questions about what we covered this morning or comments? All right, I'm going to pray for us. Father, we're grateful for your love for us. We're grateful that in Christ we have a perfect example of what it means to love your church. And Father, we pray that we would consider what does it mean to love one another, that we would consider it not just in our thoughts, but that we would consider it in our thoughts and then move them to action. Father, that you would conform us and conform our hearts and mold our thoughts to be reminded first of the love with which you've extended us in Christ. And Father, out of the overflow of that love, would we forbear, would we love, would we encourage, would we forgive, would we submit to and help? Lord, would we do all of the, the one another's that you have commanded us? 
that you've said marks us, that you said is good for us. God, will we do all of those things? But will we do them out of a, an overwhelming understanding of the love with which we've been extended in Christ? And Father, we pray that we would, uh, that all of this would be for your glory and we know it will be for our good. So Father, when we wrong one another or when we hurt one another, would we go to one another in love? Would we, would we seek to, to put the glory of the gospel on display that has taken the enemies of God and made them the friends of God, that has taken those that are once hostile to God and has called them sons and daughters? Would that same love compel us today and every day until Christ Jesus returns? We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.